Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover Salem's Lot, Part 1, Chapters 4 through 7. Let's start the show! The townspeople of Salem's Lot, including Ben Mears, search for the missing Ralphie Glick without any luck. Lawrence Crockett considers the deal he's made with Straker and involves two minions in a task that results in an eerie experience at the Marston House. Constable Parkins Gillespie investigates the town's newcomers as Straker and Ben start to be seen around town more. Ralphie's brother, Danny, dies unexpectedly. Ben continues his relationship with Susan with the blessing of her father and the disapproval of her mother. He also befriends high school English teacher Matt Burke. Dud Rogers is attacked by Kurt Barlow, and Mike Ryerson seems to have come down with a strange illness. Matt brings Mike into his home, but Mike invites something else in. Ooh, got the chills. Jay, you were right to get the chills because this section is legitimately scary. Yeah. Like, there, this, this is a scary book. Yes. There, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There are four scenes in this section alone that are terrifying. There's the one where Mike Ryerson is attacked while in the graveyard. Mm-hmm. There's the one when Dud Rogers is sort of seduced slash attacked in the the town dump. The town dump. Um, when Larry Crockett's hired goons have to go to the house and and make a delivery. That's scary. And then the final scene in this section with Matt Burke hearing the attack of the vampire feeding on Mike Ryerson at the end is just legitimately spooky. Oh, yeah. I've read so many of Stephen King's books and very few of them have like truly made me frightened the way like a, a really scary movie does. And I know that there are uh, like there are people who avoid horror movies. For that reason, I'm actually one of them, despite <laughs> my my love of Stephen King and horror books. But I don't really like the way the the movies freak me out. Right. And this book is maybe the scariest Stephen King book that I can think of. Uh, there are scary moments here and there. Like it comes pretty close. Yeah. But I think King's reputation for writing horror, it's a horror of a certain kind. Um, this is just like what's in that shadow what was that sound something's gonna get me kind of horror and it just keeps coming back even in just this short passage of the book like like you said four different scenes i was scared out of my wits it's great yeah and i wonder if part of that is you know a lot of stephen king books are not scary but the situations are bad and Mm -hmm. because they're sort of realistic right like you think about the evil people who are in his books who do bad things and those make you uncomfortable. It's sort of like cringeworthy, right? Because you're like, oh, I can imagine that a person might act like that in the real world. And that makes me uncomfortable. But then some of his stories, which are scary, I, I'm thinking of like the Tommyknockers, that just ends up being more silly, right? Because it's yeah aliens. And, and when he gets into those, when he gets into like the, the really over the top supernatural stuff, I sort of write that off as like, oh, well, it's supernatural. And I know vampires are supernatural, but there's just like enough 
I don't know, there's like that possibility, like, yeah, there could be people there who would just su- sort of suck your blood and, and do that in a way that I think that that's what gives me the creeps. Like, I know it's fake, but it's just real enough that you could imagine these things happening. Yeah. But it's sort of like, you know, Cujo is about a dog that just gets rabies and it happens to be a massive, powerful dog. And because it goes mad with the disease, it kills a whole bunch of people. Yeah. But Christine is a car possessed by some sort of demon. Like, that's never going to happen. No. But a dog could get rabies and lash out at all the humans around it. Right. So maybe that's why Cujo, in some ways, is way scarier than Christine. And here, yeah. You're right. I mean, vampires aren't real, but the way that these vampires uh, establish their evil is something that could be, you know, a human trait almost. Yes. And King has set this in a world that is so realistic. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm really getting a sense that I know the town and the people of Salem's lot. And because there's all that other realism, I think just by the adjacency to that, the vampires seem more real because they're in this world. It's not totally out of bounds. Yeah. Or like hard science fiction. Like everything has to be exactly true to science, except maybe for one thing that is the fiction part of it. So the more realistic the rest of it is, the easier it is to accept the fiction. So here, the more realistic Salem's Lot is and the characters, the people in the world that they exist in, the easier it is to accept the evil and the supernatural that the vampire is. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And we obviously knew going into this book that Salem's Lot is about vampires. The last few short stories we've read have been leading up to vampires. And so it's not a surprise to us. But it's interesting how King sort of plays around with the vampire piece. Like, you're not quite sure if these are vampires. Like, if you were reading this for the first time, like, oh, this guy has, this kid has anemia and he's dying. And there seems to be some sort of undead creature in the graveyard. But you don't know it's vampires really until uh, Matt Burke comes to the realization at the end of this mm-hmm. but we're pretty convinced that it's vampires and King does a lot with that vampire myth and our understanding of that to sort of set this up you know being invited into the house being around graveyards uh, a lot of rats being around and and those sorts of imagery and traits of vampires that we know sort of play into this absolutely one of the aspects of vampire lore that has existed as long as vampire stories have is the pitting Christian lore versus the vampire myth or the fact that vampire mythology is sort of encased within Christian teaching, Christian lore. Mm. The idea that vampires would shrink away from a cross is all about how it's almost like Christianity and faith are bound to vampirism because one could not have power over the other if the religious aspect did not mean anything to the vampire and king is holding true to that part of the the vampire mythos and that these vampires seem to be intertwined with christian lore and i think that we get our first taste of that through the resident catholic priest in our story yes good old father callahan and when he's reading scripture at the funeral he has chosen or in truth king has put words in (laughs) callahan's mouth that are dripping with vampire imagery he could be saying any psalm any hymn any prayer but the words that he chooses to use here are just bloody Mm -hmm. and like one of the lines that he says is the man who believes in me will live on 
though he dies, and every living person who puts his faith in me will never suffer eternal death. And then you raised the dead to life. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if King's going for something there, right. right? And then he follows that soon after with, he was nourished with your body and blood. You know, like there's clearly something King is, is leaning really heavily on this Christian imagery to bolster the power and maybe even the fear that we have of these vampires. Right. And it's, it's for this burial and it's immediately going to be desecrated mm -hmm. by a vampire as Mike Ryerson just sort of goes crazy or is made crazy and breaks open the coffin. And so what, and when I read that part of it is I think that Callahan's almost going through the motions. And I know I might be reading a little bit more into this because we know where Callahan ends up as a, as a result of the dark tower. Mm -hmm. But the scene after the burial, the first scene we have with Callahan after the burial, you can see that he is a disillusioned priest in some ways. Very much so, yeah. He He's an alcoholic. He doesn't know what good he's having in the town. And he longs for the days when the Catholic Church had real evil to go against. And he feels like the culture wars that are going on in his time are really minor and are just evil with a small e. And he can't even get the sense of of outrage about this stuff because it's all sort of meaningless in his mind. Like back in the day, you know, when priests were priests, we had real evil with big capital letters to fight against. And I wish I had mm -hmm. that opportunity because those priests did something and the church meant something back then. And I need this. And the whole time I'm reading that, I'm thinking, be careful what you wish for father Callahan. Yep. You're going to be in trouble. Yeah, exactly. So after that, you know, we see this, immediate desecration of of the crypt or not the crypt the the coffin and and bringing back danny glick and callahan isn't aware of any of this and he's sort of still drunk and gonna make it through but he's becoming a more central character because we do get this long interior monologue of what evil means and it seemed as i was reading it i'm like this is an important scene not just because i know who father callahan is but it's sort of setting up this big theme of big evil versus little evil and a lot of what we've seen in Salem's Lot thus far has been the little evil. You know, the the mother hitting the baby, the man cheating on his wife, mm -hmm. just minor minor corruption. But there is a big evil that undergirds this town that has come in and, and is going to probably do bad things, I would imagine. Do you think that when Callahan spills his alcohol on the floor and then uses some cleanser to clean it up, that's like a metaphor of him cleaning up the evil of the world? <laughs> I guess if he had some sort of bleach to do that, that would be nice. But I have a feeling mm. that's not going to be enough. Probably not. So the other interesting thing about the vampires is at the end of this section, our resident English teacher, Matt Burke, figures out that these are vampires. And for me, that was just a cool aha moment that vampires exist in the world of literature that Matt Burke lives in. Yep. I made the point to you earlier about how in The Walking Dead, no one seems to be aware of the fact that there could be zombies. Like, it seems like there's not been any sort of media or stories or myths about zombies. Everyone's sort of surprised that, what? There's Walking Dead? This is so strange. How how bizarre. What do we, <laughs> what do, we do about this? But Matt Burke has figured this out. He was already a little suspicious because Danny Glick had been drained of his blood, but he didn't want to put too much together. But then when he hears the sucking of Mike Ryerson, he realizes that this is a lot like Samuel Coleridge's Christabel or Bram Stoker's Dracula, 
where this sounds like what's happened in these stories is happening in the real world and it's in my house and it's right next door and oh my god i'm so scared yeah and i wonder does inviting a vampire in work via the transitive property (laughs) i suppose so since he because matt invited ryerson into his house and then ryerson invited another vampire and he was allowed in yeah it's not your house mike why are you inviting people in you're just a guest how rude haven't you heard of guests rights you have only have so many rights two people at a time (laughs) yeah so i like how he figures this out again matt burke seems very smart uh through our his conversations with ben mears we get a sense that this is a smart guy and he's figured it out so he, he pulls out coleridge's christabel which is an interesting poem not one that i was super familiar with but has a lot of vampire imagery without directly being vampires, but a lot of the same traits. There's a, a woman who's found out in the woods and she has trouble crossing running water and, and coming into the homestead until Christabel in, invites her in and carries her over the threshold and then she's fine. And then there's all sorts of blood imagery and hypnotism throughout. So a lot of what we get from a typical vampire stories is in that long form poem. And of course, we're all familiar with Dracula and, and know that that's a, a story, but Matt's like, yep, this is happening and this is real. And I wish I could call Ben, although I'm not sure what he thinks Ben could do. But he keeps saying, like, I wish I could call Ben. I wish I could call Ben. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he wrote and set the story in the 70s means he doesn't have to find a way to artificially remove cell phones from all of his characters. That's true. That's true. (laughs) So, of course, my big takeaway from this is that reading is important, people. You should get yourself up to speed on any possible myths or dangers that could happen so that you're prepared. Yeah. Cover all the bases, because you never know when mummies might strike, (laughs) or dangerous aliens, or... Or some sort of dystopian future. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) Touching on the fact that vampire literature exists in the world of Salem's Lot, is like the audacity of a vampire to live in a small town like this. Mm. It just doesn't make any sense. We spent so much of the book so far learning about the intricacies of the interpersonal relationships and connections to the people who live in Salem's Lot and how everybody knows everybody and everybody's business. This is not a place where you can walk around incognito or unobserved. Right. It just isn't. So why would you, a vampire, who despite, if we're going to just assume some of the general myths of vampires you're stronger you're faster you're immortal all these things you have a lot of advantages over your average human but you still have weaknesses you can't be out in the daylight you could be staked through the heart etc you need to have like human familiars to protect you when you are in this in these moments of, of weakness why would you put yourself in this situation where people will become suspicious of you instantly outright distrust you just a few minutes later and then react and perhaps attack you in short order when if you lived in like a big city you're basically anonymous at all times right dead bodies showing up on a in an alley uh easily explained away by something that's not vampires <laughs> right right like homeless person disappears nobody notices but if one people pers- might notice yeah. but yeah but if one person disappears in salem's lot it's going to be on the on the party lines across all the telephones going throughout town and everyone in town is going to join the search parties and worry and be sad and upset and angry. Like, this is not a good move. When we meet Barlow a little bit and we've also spent a bit more time with Straker, these seem like intelligent, educated, cosmopolitan type people or people slash vampires. <laughs> and they, they could 
probably fit in and get along anywhere in the world. Why would they choose a very small town in Maine? So I just feel like it, it requires a lot of audacity and there's got to be something to it. Yeah. And so having already read Jerusalem's lot, we wonder if there's something else besides the town, right? Like, is there a deeper evil here that that's what's drawn the vampires mm. here? Or why pick the small town? Is it because they want to totally destroy it? Is it because there's something else evil there? Um, we don't know. Um, having read Jerusalem's lot, it makes you wonder if there's something that's drawing things there. And we get that whole discussion between Matt Burke and Ben Mears about the novel that Ben's writing. And we learn the history of the people who were in the in the house and how he was a bootlegger and how he was evil too. Yeah. And so maybe this is just like a magnet for evil in some ways. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the audaciousness is not too smart, you would think, but maybe they're not worried about vampire hunters. Yeah. Van Helsing has been long dead. There's no blade in this world. <laughs> there is a Steven Dorf, though. <laughs> That's the one constant across all the worlds, Steven Dorf. <laughs> so we talked about Matt Burke, and we learn a lot more about him in this section as he has a number of scenes with Ben Mears. And one of the things that I thought about is that we talked last episode about how Ben Mears is a stand-in for King. Yeah. He's a young writer. Got a couple books in him. Yeah, he thinks he's pretty smart, wants to make out with the best looking girl in town. You know how it is. So I had always assumed that, hey, this is Ben Mears is the stand in for King. But after meeting Matt Burke, I wonder if Matt Burke is a, if not direct stand in for King, because Matt Burke is quite a bit older in this book than Ben Mears. I mm -hmm. get the sense like he's in his, his 50s. He's known everyone in town. It seems like all the younger people had been his student at one point in time. But I wonder if Matt Burke is a possible stand-in of what King's life could have been like. Yeah. Because Matt says how he, he, he wishes he could have written a book, but he realized he didn't have a talent. And so that's why he's an English teacher. And he's a good English teacher, but it's not necessarily what he wanted to do with his life. But hey, it's a happy life. And he lives as a bachelor in a house and, you know, eats spaghetti over the sink. But hey, it's still not a bad life, but... Digs rock and roll. Loves rock and roll. Yeah. Likes it loud gets to go to the bar every once in a while. And I wonder if King sees this as, this is the potential of what my life could be like if I don't become a professional writer. Yeah. When you first outlined this idea, I was blown away by it. it this is brilliant. This is King's double twinner, <laughs> right? The fact that Matt and Ben are basically the two versions of King that could have come to be if King did or didn't become a professional author. Mm or at least a successful one. And the fact that King has sort of divided those two halves of the same coin of himself into these two characters at a time in his own life when he only has had somewhat limited success. And who knows, he may have created these characters before he even sold Carrie, right? Right. So he doesn't know this about himself yet. He hasn't become a successful author. He is just a guy trying to be one. Yep. And what is he doing while he's not writing his books? He's teaching school. He's, he is Matt, right? So he's like, Matt is the default king, and Ben is the aspirational king as he's writing this book, which goes on to make him 100% the Ben version. Right. And I just think that that's great because it, it lets King speak through both of these characters in ways that are true to the characters, but also they can both be his analogs in this story. Yes. In a very effective and realistic way. Yeah, I, I, I dug it. And Matt is a character I can relate to 
pretty easily. Like he seems like a good guy. He cares about his students. Like the fact that he takes an interest in Mike Ryerson at the bar and says, Hey, you don't look good. And he's worried it's drugs, invites him in his home to take care of him. Um, he's the same way with the drunk that stays in the rooming house that Ben Mears is staying in. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's Matt and Ben who rescue him from being passed out in the bathroom. Um, he's a good guy. Uh, he's a smart guy. He's got his head on his shoulders. He seems like he knows how to have fun. And yeah, I do get that sense that, Hey, this might not be a bad life if I, if, if I wasn't a writer in Stephen King's head. In addition to Matt being introduced, we learn a lot more about some other characters in this section. All characters we've been introduced to before, but we get a little bit more explanation as they sort of become a little more fleshed out and more interesting. Mm-hmm. And each of these is a different type of sorts. We talked about our tropes last episode. We want to talk a little bit about potential character types. And I thought we'd start off with Parkins Gillespie, our constable. He's he's really sort of a super cop. Like yeah. we talked before about how in the first section, he seemed not your average small town cop. He has a little bit of his head on his shoulder. And here we get to see him do the investigation that into the newcomers in town, both Ben Mears and Straker, to try to figure out what's going on, especially in light of the fact that a kid's missing. Yeah, he's like... Uh... Columbo and Matlock rolled into one. <laughs> he might not be the cop that Salem's Lot deserves, but he's definitely the cop that Salem's Lot needs. Absolutely. So he takes the good cop approach with Ben Mears. Like you get the sense that he doesn't think that Ben Mears is responsible for Ralphie Glick's disappearance, mm-hmm. but he's going to check out all his leads. And so he interviews him, but it's a very friendly type of interview. And He brings a copy of his book and, you know, asks the nice questions. And it's really Ben who's standoffish in that. Like, hey, you're the man. Why are you questioning me? And I get the sense that Ben's a little bit of a rebellious type of author. Well, yeah, I mean, there's that. But Ben is also very astute. And he sees through Gillespie's ruse or his his act, right? Gillespie is playing good cop, but he is still very curious about Ben. And he still wants to get to the bottom of him even if it's just to rule him out as a suspect, no matter how nicely he puts it, Ben is still going to see through that and get annoyed. Yes. And he does. But I, I think they still part ways in that scene as... Respectful. Friends? Yeah, not friends, respectful. Yeah. Because Ben knows he didn't do anything wrong and he is not happy that Parkins is questioning him. And Parkins doesn't think Ben did anything wrong, but at the same time, he's going to do his job. Parkins immediately follows that up with a drop into the new antique store to talk to Straker and maybe meet Barlow, who's not around. And that conversation is much more on a dual level. At the very high level, they're being very... Overly polite? Yeah, they're being polite to each other. They're being... uh, That interview is very much a, I'll answer all your questions just like you'd like, sir. And Mm -hmm. I'm not going to... But on the under level, you sense the tension. And Parkins walks out of that interview knowing, okay, there's something really not right about that dude, but I don't have anything that I can go on now. He answered my questions, but not in a way that I'd like, and I'm going to keep my eyes on him. And you sense that Gillespie knows what's going on, if not to the extent of vampires, but like, this is somebody I need to keep my eye on. Yeah. And you also get the sense that Straker, despite all of the flowery language between them, left that, that interaction with crap. This guy might be a problem. Yeah, this is this cop's a problem. He's not a pushover like we assumed he would be in a small town. Yep. So one of the other character types we have is Dud Rogers, and he's the 
outcast who runs the town dump. Mm-hmm. And in the scene that we see with him, he is getting seduced by Barlow, who makes his first appearance. And at first, Dud is excited because he's going to be able to go down to the bar or the supply shop and tell people, hey, I'm the guy who saw Barlow first. Yep. But he is hypnotized in some ways by Barlow and really seduced by this. And Barlow takes advantage of the fact that Dud is an outcast and plays on that to get him to do what he wants, which is get fed on and become a vampire as well, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, the the seduction is not a sexual one. It is one of a promise of things that he wants. And in Dud's case, it's the respect and attraction of his like peers in the town and the, the women who he has eyes for. And he realizes that his appearance has always kept him outside of the main circle. Mm. But he knows where he is in society and he wishes it weren't that way. And that's what Arlo promises him. I can elevate you in society. Just kind of hang out with me for a little bit. Don't don't ask any questions. Yeah, just move yeah. your neck over to the side a little bit, right? Yep, there you go. I got it. All will be well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not going to end up well for Dud. No. <laughs> I mean, someone had to go. Well, I guess he's not really going first. But he's near the top of the list. Yeah. And it seems that King's vampires in this book have almost like a telekinesis persuasion Mm, yep and i think that's what danny glick was doing in the graveyard like he was inside the coffin and he was sending out his vibes saying let me out of this coffin yeah don't bury me let me free and that's exactly what happened there's no reason why anything else would have happened except for that and here barlow is using his full power to do that to convince dud that everything he's whispering in his ear is true and will definitely happen So we keep coming back to this couple, Roy and Sandy McDougal. Mm. Sandy McDougal's the one who keeps uh, hitting her kid. She hates being home alone. And Roy is her husband who's not happy in the marriage. And I'm still not exactly sure why these two keep coming up and we keep checking in with them because they seem peripheral to the vampire story at this point. Um, they seem to maybe represent the banal evil of the town, the fact that neither one of them's happy. They're both not the nicest of people, but I'm not sure where they tie in yet. But I wanted to point them out because King's brought them up in both sections so far. We're getting to know them fairly well already, and so clearly King's got plans for them. And I think that as representatives of the banal evil, they're perfect for that. They don't do anything that that you don't hear about on the, the evening news on a daily basis, but the things that they do are terrible. The way they treat each other, the way they treat their child, the way that they just kind of move through the world. It's just sort of, it's not great. No. So what is King getting at with that? I I think it's that they're a a lesser version of Marston. You know, Marston was was a man, but he was an evil man. And he was so evil that, as you theorized earlier, he was drawn to Salem's Lot because it was a place that draws evil to it. And I don't think Salem's Lot has made Roy and Sandy McDougal evil people, but I don't think that the town that they live in is helping. No, definitely not. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely not. Now, on the other hand, we have Mike Ryerson, who we've talked about before. He's the one of the graveyard keepers, Parks guy, and he seems like a good guy. Yeah. Matt Burke remembers him as a decent student, but he's pretty sure, oh, he might be on drugs now before he realizes, no, he's actually, he's sort of sick. 
He's even really thoughtful. Like the fact that he has this awareness of his role in every funeral that happens in Salem's Lot and that he needs to make himself not visible during certain parts of the day and the ceremony, especially that no one wants to see a guy holding a shovel while they are laying a loved one to rest. Right. right. It's like there's just there's too much detail there to think about. Like that's the guy who's going to fill the hole in. Like yeah. I. And, and he's aware enough of this and th that he goes and he hides and he does something to make himself scarce. And yeah, and he seems to be liked around town and he's a friendly guy. Matt remembers him fondly, like not his best student, but not his worst. Yeah. So he's tied directly into the story. And I don't know how long he's going to be around based on that last scene, but he's here for a while. Yeah. The next time we <laughs> see him might not be so great. Yeah. And our next character I wanted to point out was Larry Crockett. And this is almost a king trope, right? The richest guy in town who's also not a good guy. Mm -hmm. You get a really good sense in a lot of king novels that the richest guy in town's rich for a reason. And it's probably because he's corrupt or doing something bad on the side. And he's going to continue to do that and not beneficial to the town in general and probably not beneficial to to your everyday person. And Crockett seems to be top of the list of that like he knows he's doing things that are wrong he thinks i may have made a deal with the devil and what i did to sell the the marston house and the reason i sold it and i got sort of a kickback on the side for this other land and this might be a deal with the devil and then he realizes oh yeah they're really it really might be the devil this is bad news all around and yet rather than extricate himself from the situation he just keeps playing along and when his two minions come back and say, hey, we saw something in that house and it might have been that Ralphie Glick kid who's missing because we saw the jeans and the shirt. He's just like, no, you didn't see that. Here's 50 bucks. Oh, and here's a bottle of liquor too. Forget you saw anything. Yeah. That's never a good sign when you continue to play along with the evil. He could have done nothing and allowed some discovery to happen, but instead he actively worked against the interest of the town in, in a way that he, yeah. He could have, he had to do less than zero to be evil, and he did. Yep. Yeah. King does not take fondly to these people no. in any of his novels. And I have a feeling that Larry Micah has come up at some point because it does seem like this happens to characters like this in King books. But we'll see. And you got to wonder like, if you are Straker and Barlow, maybe you've done this routine lots of times already and you've just been making your way through the world and making your way through little towns and that's what works for you and they always figure out who is the larry crew cut of the <laughs> of wherever they're they're setting up shop and they know how to tempt him they know how to manipulate him and they know how to control him until he can't be controlled anymore and then they get rid of him and move on to the next larry crew cut yep yep good old larry crew cut uh, and then finally, uh, we, we saw him in the first section, but we really get a good sense of Mark Petrie in this section. Yep. He is the friend of the Glick boys, and we see him in his room as he overhears his parents talking about him and what has happened around town. Yeah, he's the precocious young boy who is going to become the central character of the story kind of thing, which sounds familiar from a stephen king perspective yeah since he's about 11 to 12 years old king's sweet spot here right yeah totally and mark seems to be wise beyond his years 
very much so. You know, he talks about how when his dog had to be put to sleep, how his mother cried and was very emotional in the moment. And he wasn't. He understood what had to happen. But he said his mother wouldn't remember in three days about the dog. Like She, she expended all her emotion mm-hmm. in the moment, whereas he would think about that dog and what happened to it for the rest of his life. Yeah. And he is smart enough to realize that. It's not even like that's what's going to happen, but I have the meta knowledge to think about this. And yet he's still a boy because he's happy when his parents say good things about him. Mm-hmm. You know, he smiles and works on his model, and but he still overhears and, and listens to that. So um, he's a, a good setup, a sweet spot for King. And as we've seen from the prologue to this book, we're pretty sure that he's going to be, as you said, one of the central characters to this. Yeah. Sean, I think that that's a really good segue into our Dark Tower Thinnies. Because, as you pointed out earlier when we were talking about King Twinners, I think that Mark Petrie is a twinner for Jake. Mm. We've had other twinners for Jake and other stories, and I think Mark Petrie is another one. He's 12 years old, so he's less than a year older than Jake is during the entire Dark Tower story. Um, King describes him in a line, At age 12, Mark Petrie was a little skinnier than the average and slightly delicate looking, yet he moved with a grace and litheness that is not the common lot of boys his age. Hmm. That to me sounds like a potential gunslinger in the making. Very much so. I think I can see it. Yep. I could easily see transposing that description on Jake. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure King has used words like that to describe Jake. And usually through Roland's eyes, like he sees this trait or this series of traits in Jake. And I bet that if Roland met Mark Petrie, he would think, I bet I could teach him to be a gunslinger. Ah, Yeah. And so we know from the prologue that Mark Petrie is going to at some point meet and be befriended loved and looked up to as potentially a father figure ben mirrors Mm -hmm. so you know maybe they're going to have a similar relationship as jake and roland have potentially yeah i thought you were gonna say jake and the fat man (laughs) (laughs) i i was also going to say you know if as long as we're making those connections i didn't realize this until earlier today that ben mirrors girlfriend is susan much like Roland's girlfriend is Susan Delgado. So I wonder if King had a Susan in his life that he just kept writing about. Yeah. Like it's like Charlie Brown's little redheaded girl that there must've been a Susan in King's life that turning up in all these books. Yeah. Of course, as I think about that, and if we're making the distinction that Mark is Jake and Roland might be Ben, if Susan, Susan, it's not going to end well for her. Not if any, (laughs) not if her fate follows some of the other Susans we've gotten to know. Yes. Do you have any other Dark Tower thinnies, Jay? Well, uh, there was one that when we were learning a little bit about the vampire mythology, or at least the, the stuff specifically called out in Salem's Lot, I didn't know that running water and roses were vampire repellents. Mm. I think somewhere in the back of my mind, I knew something about the running water, but roses, no. Just like I've heard of garlic and crosses and holy water and stakes through the heart and all that stuff, but roses i didn't know that about the roses so i can't ever think of a rose or see a rose anymore without thinking of the kankanore that surround the dark tower and their power those roses were special in the universe Mm. and maybe it is something inherent to them and 
perhaps all roses that are more powerful than the power of uh, vampires. And there's a very thin, thinny back <laughs> to the Dark Tower that if roses are vampire repellents, it is because of their association with the Dark Tower. Potentially. Either that or the creators of the Dark Tower didn't want any vampires invading it. Yeah. It's like the defense system against vampires. Yeah. It didn't work on the Crimson King, but it kept all the vampires out. Yeah, he, he wasn't a vampire. No. Hee 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 hee. ha I'm not a vampire. Hee <laughs> hee. Your roses won't keep me away. <laughs> How about you? Did you have any Dark Tower thinnies? So the only one that I thought about is Callahan and the fact that he wants to fight this big evil that we talked about before. Mm-hmm. And it is almost as if he wants to take that next step and potentially be a gunslinger, like have some sort of bigger role in the world. You know, we often think about priests as not just serving God, but being an ambassador in the community and going on. And so he has a lot of those traits that the gunslingers have beyond just sort of the shooting, right? The, dealing in lead. Yeah, dealing in lead, exactly. They they have traits beyond that. And um that might be a good connection between Calhan and 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 a gunslinger makes sense for why he was the character that King has pulled out and brought into the Dark Tower series. Yes. I definitely count that as a thinny. I mean, we can just keep saying like Callahan is in the Dark Tower. So anytime he appears in this book, it's a kind of thinny. But I I think that the nature of what you just talked about, his motivations in the world, his his idea of his service to God and how he wants to serve his fellow man, uh, I think are all traits of gunslingers as as we understand them. And as you said, like that's why King chose him to bring into the Dark Tower. He he hasn't done that with many of his other characters. No. I think it only Father Callahan and Ted Brodigan really have just been pulled wholesale. And Brodigan was written for the tower. Right. It, it, so it's it the order of operations here is different for Callahan. <laughs> King King basically looked back on his entire body of work up until that point and said, I'd like to bring somebody in to this dark tower. Who could it be? And Callahan really works. And he's one of the best characters in the later tower books. Um and I think it's because of what he brings with him from his experiences in this book and also who he becomes once he crosses over mm. once he has the experience that brings him to Roland's world and into Roland's circle so i think that callahan as a gunslinger priest it's a thought that i've had many times reading about him in the dark tower like if he wanted to he could strap on some guns and and be as effective a gunslinger as Roland but he held fast to his you know priestly ways right. even in midworld so he never he never went down that that path, but he could have. Indeed. He he's a fun character. It right now he's sort of off on an island. Like we see Matt and Ben interacting. You know, I, I I'll be interested to see how he intertwines into this story. If if these characters all come together at some point. We know Mark Petrie and Ben hook up at some point. Um, but I, I I'm interested to see when all of this sort of comes together and how Callahan fits into that. Absolutely. All right, well, I think it's time for some fun stuff. Oh, man, I love fun stuff. Let's do it. Shall I kick us off? You shall. All right. One thing I thought was really fun was I loved how Straker had a familiar 
accentless voice. Familiar, eh? Interesting. Hmm. Familiar. So I talked about how Matt and Ben sort of have hooked up and they decide together with Susan to form a welcoming committee and they decide like, we're going to take a look and introduce ourselves to Barlow and Straker and maybe see what's going on up at the house. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like they were forming some sort of Scooby-Doo team here. I thought they just needed yeah. like a, somebody with glasses and a big anthropomorphic dog and they'd be all set to form their own little mystery crew. He's not anthropomorphic. He's a great Dane. But he talks like a human and eats like a human. Oh. But he doesn't have a human shape. <laughs> yeah, but anthropomorphic is just taking on character traits of humans, yes or no? Or do you have to like be the shape of a human? Isn't the morph part the shape? Well, whatever the case, he acts like a human, Scooby-Doo does. <laughs> and I just thought... Listeners, send in your emails to twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. <laughs> Tell us what anthropomorphic means. Of course, then we'll find out that Barlow and Straker aren't really vampires, but it's just good old Mr... Mr. Peabody. Mr. Peabody, and he would have gone away with it if it weren't for those meddling authors and English teachers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I really like the fact that Mark Petrie had a whole collection of these glow-in-the-dark plastic models of monsters. And in addition to the monster models, he also had a plastic Jesus. As one does. And that reminds me of one of the best scenes in Cool Hand Luke, when Luke sings the plastic Jesus song upon learning of the death of his mother. I don't care if it rains or freezes long as I got a plastic Jesus now those glow-in-the-dark monster models are those the ones that were like made with like radium or uranium and poisoned all those kids way back then i mean it was either that or the lead Eh, either way i guess mark petrie doesn't have to worry about vampires as much as he does (laughs) the other stuff yes the dangers of the world so larry crewcut mentions that uh when you deal with the devil notes come due in brimstone i thought that was a cool little line that king came up with yeah that's awesome it's almost like it's from a Charlie Daniels song or something. <laughs> you could also tell that King's a better writer than I am because they talk about flipping a coin. The two guys that Larry Crewcut sends and they're like, who's going to go in the house? And they're like, oh, we'll flip a coin. And I would have said, oh, the coin came up tails. But King says the eagle gleamed at them dully. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's why you're a good writer and I'm not. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's why King is successful at writing. Um. Sorry, I was trying to spin that into a more positive way. (laughs) It sounded even more insulting. Uh, There is a line in here that I thought was just pure gold. The tide was on the turn, and the gulls were restless with it, wheeling and crying overhead against the sunset crimson sky. This is like the second episode where we've talked about this book, and I keep coming back to like King could have made the same amount of money writing like travel articles or something. Just like. (laughs) Come visit Hawaii, where the gulls will be restless with the wind, and they will cry overhead against the sunset crimson sky. You know, it's like, 
All right. Yeah. I'm buying my tickets right now. There you go. So Mark has a unique view on reading. He noticed that his mom's probably downstairs reading a, a Jane Austen novel for the 10th time. And Mark was darned if he could see the sense in reading a book more than once. You knew how it was going to end. Interesting way of looking at life and, and reading. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should follow his advice. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, I think both of us have forgotten a lot about this book, so it's okay reading yeah. it again. Yeah. Every time I read a book for a, a second, third, or however many times, there is, of course, the of getting something new from it, but a lot of times I've forgotten a lot of the, the tiny details. I just It's always enjoyable if it's a good book to begin with. Yeah, this is sort of how I feel about spoiler culture. Like if a work of art, whether this be a movie or a book or a TV show, if it's good, even if you know how it ends, really, it's sort of the journey that gets you there. You know, if I simply said like, oh, at the very end, Roland is going to get to the tower and he's going to repeat the cycle again. Yeah, I know how that ends, but how does he get there? The, what what's the, what what are the choices that happen along the way? Who are the characters he meets? That's really what's interesting, not just knowing the plot of the book. Mm-hmm. And that's really what King talked about in the introduction to this book. We talked about how he's not a plotter. He's a storyteller, and the characters lead him in different ways. And so he's not sitting down and just saying, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. For Mark, that would be enough. But like really the interesting thing is what happening is what's happening along the way. So Yeah. I don't see exactly eye to eye with you on the spoiler culture stuff, but I take your perspective at face value. It's There is validity to it, but I think there are certain types of stories and certain types of information that if you have them, it does reduce your enjoyment. It's like twist endings or surprises that I think if you have that information, your experience will be different. I don't know if it will necessarily be worse, but it'll definitely be different. It'll definitely be different, yes. But if that's all you're there for, then you could just have somebody give you a summary of stuff. Right. Well, then you just have the spoiler and you don't ever experience the art. That is true. Whatever the case, that brings us to the end of this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode... Join us as we cover Salem's Lot, Part 2, Chapters 8 through 10. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. In the trash, the garbage, The dump, the town dump. Oh no, it's the missing Ralph.